Welcome to this episode of Stand Out, the podcast to better your business, brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Listen in, and you'll walk away with insights from exemplary members who share their business acumen and the newest ideas from authors and thought leaders relevant to the organizing and productivity industry. And now, here's your host, longtime NAPO member, Claire Kumar. Hi, I'm productivity catalyst Claire Kumar and your host of Stand Out, the podcast all about bettering your organizing and productivity business. And we know sometimes that means bettering ourselves. So today I'm very honored to have former academic and author Ron Friedman with me to talk about his latest book, Decoding Greatness. In this book, Ron draws on research on pattern recognition, skill acquisition, and creative genius. And he unleashes his fascination with high-performing athletes, musicians, chefs, and business leaders to share unexpected insights. I loved reading this book. It's great storytelling and like the unexpected insights I just mentioned. I first met Ron at an event here in Toronto a few years ago. It was a human resources event all about the workplace. It was right after his publication of his first book, The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace, which has got to be on readers' top lists now. It's a riveting read. It sold over 50,000 copies. Highly recommend that book as well. And also in my, really, and I just told Ron this the list just before we started talking now, Ron's newsletter is the only newsletter I read every month. It is the best ideas of the month. It's a roundup of articles featuring news about what will make you, and this is Ron's language, healthier, happier, and more productive. Some of you may remember Ron's Productivity Summit Peak Performance, which was also full of leading subject matter experts and thought leaders. So Ron, I am beyond thrilled to have you here. And if I remember correctly, you live right across the lake from me in Rochester. And I think of you often when I look out my window. So a warm welcome to you today. Thank you. That was a very kind introduction. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you. So I have to say, I've read a lot of books and hosted a lot of shows now, and it's very rare to have a guide to being a good podcast host built right in that book. Your last chapter (laughs) in the book is how to talk to experts. So let's find out if I've learned anything from reading your book. (laughs) I wanted to start with a question around being a collector. You talk early on in the book around this power of observation and reverse engineering, breaking things down. You write a lot about also about Van Gogh, who is a collector. And I'm wondering if you could share some of the things, material or otherwise, that have inspired your journey. What's part of your collector landscape? Well, obviously, books are, is one of them. I read a ton. And as I'm reading, I'm always underlining. I don't have any books that don't have any words in them generated by me. It's almost like a conversation with the author. I don't know if you do that too, but it's part of the ways in which I identify some of the better ideas and then repurpose them later on as courses or perhaps in articles or in books. So I'm always collecting stories. I'm doing that for academic journal articles as well, trying to figure out what's an interesting insight that might be applicable to the workplace or for for productivity nuts like us. <laughs> and obviously great stories that sometimes have nothing to do with the workplace, but I look for linkages in which maybe I can bring to life a boring study with some type of interesting story. So that's something that I do often. 
but the purpose of collecting really is to look for insights beyond the surface level value of the information. And so one of the, one of the examples I give in this book, Decoding Greatness, is how algorithms identify patterns. And I bring up the story of this couple that met on Tinder and I explain how it is that Tinder gets really good at figuring out who you're going to find attractive. And the answer is that it offers up a series of potential mates and it asks you to swipe right if you find them attractive or swipe left if you don't. And then after it has that initial collection of people you've deemed attractive, it looks for patterns around what those people have in common that you may not even be conscious of. And so you might be swiping right to people you find attractive, but underlying that pattern is the fact that they are all extroverted or they like spicy food. That's not something you're going on to Tinder looking for is people who like spicy food, but the algorithm has identified that as a pattern in your selection process. And now it can use that information to better predict who else you're going to find attractive. We can all learn from that as we're trying to figure out what it is that makes particular works resonant. So for example, if you like a particular writer's style and you're trying to become a better writer, collecting their best stories or examples of riveting articles, and then doing a comparison of objects that are in your collection against those that are not in your collection, that process enlightens you to the factors that make those works unique and teaches you what it is that makes extraordinary works successful. So really, if you want to get good at figuring out what makes other people's works succeed, you first need to create a collection. And that, you know, the word collection is often thought of as physical objects. So people think about collecting wine or collecting stamps or collecting artwork, but that definition is really too narrow. Some of the best copywriters in the world are collecting headlines. The best Graphic designers are collecting logos. Best speakers are collecting presentation decks. You need a collection in order to get really good at your craft. I love that. So two things came to mind. Number one, I can confess I met my love on Tinder. So that algorithm was working for me, for sure. So, <laughs> And I didn't realize it was doing that. I certainly wasn't seeing any men with large fish in their hands anymore. So that was really reassuring. <laughs> that was really good. And oh, then I lost what I was going to say. But no, collections about things that inspire. I like that because you sort of, you have to tune into what it is that's causing a reaction in you. And I think you wrote a comment as well. If it's causing an, something evocative or provocative to you and you notice that, then maybe it's also provocative to other people. I think that point came on much later in the book. But, but this idea of tuning in and noticing is powerful. Oh, I know what else I wanted to share. I have a client right now who's a writer for business publications and he collects good phrases to improve his writing and it's brilliant, he, you know, and he wanted to think about how do we organize these so I can make them useful. So when you're notating a book, for example, you're writing in it and you're reading it with the, the view to read the content and also look for these connection points or threads and stories that you can then synergistically use later. Absolutely. And in fact, I think what has become really popular, particularly around productivity circles, is to use some of these organizing programs like Notion and MEM is a new one that people are using. Evernote obviously has been around for a while. I've never actually used any of them. And I'm a little intimidated to frankly learn how to create that language. I feel like it's got a lot of work to have to tag a million things. So personally, and it's funny because I've talked to other writers and they're like, you don't because they all use them. For me personally, I just take the best insights. I put them in a Google doc and then I just play around with organizing them. I understand that you can use some computer assisted, make improvements to it using AI or whatever it is that they're using, but I haven't gotten there yet. 
Well, I've always said that there has to be a principle about return on investment when it comes to organizing that you can spend all kinds of time structuring things, but you might never write anything. So finding that balance between going over the material, I think when you put it in the Google Doc, you're seeing it again, and then you've got a concise place to refer to it to stimulate those thoughts. I kind of think that's all you need. So yeah, you know, yeah. I think, frankly, a lot of the productivity activities that people use is like, they feel like they're going to be productive if they master this new tool or they start using this new planner. And I find that that often just creates additional work. I think simplicity often works best and it's working for me. So I'm going to stick with it for now. Absolutely. Go for it. Same thing with photos, things like, I think one of the best things I ever did was just pull out the best, stick them in a family album that's all I need to go to. Like, otherwise, it, yeah, it becomes kind of overwhelming. Oh my gosh, I have lots of questions for you. So I'm, yeah, I'm loving it. this conversation. I will give shorter answers. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know what? We're going to go wherever this goes. This is what okay. I love about exploratory conversation. We'll dance together and we'll see what comes up. But one of the questions I had for you was, you talk about self-reflection and psychological distance from work being useful. And I wonder if, the interview, you know, now you've written the book and it's out there. Does this process of being interviewed about your book put you back in touch with your journey to success at all? Mm, that's an interesting question. You know, what I find is, it's interesting because podcasters, not you, because you've clearly read the book. I think a lot of podcasters, they're so inundated with books that they have to read in order to interview the author. They're just on the hamster wheel. And so generally 80% of the podcasts I've done, I've answered the same 10 questions. And that's just the reality. So when you ask me like, is there a reflection happening part of the podcasting process? No, not really, because then you're in marketing mode and you're just trying to think about the best sound bites that you can put out in a 30 minute interview. But I do appreciate questions like this. And I'm now in the process of starting my third book. And I am reminded of the journey. Every time I complete a book and I look at it, I'm like, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> because it, when you're at the bottom of the mountain about to start, it's really intimidating. And so it actually is heartening to see it. And you, there's always a part of you that says, wow, I don't know if I can do this again. Oh, yeah. I've been at the bottom of the mountain for three years. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm like next year, it's got to come out next year. But that's really, you're right. But there are two different modes. There's the creation and then there's the getting the message out there and making sure it has the impact that you envisaged. Does that light you up? This is not a question I had, but it's coming up now. Does that marketing? light you up? Yeah. How does that fit in? I feel like I'm doing my best work when I'm taking boring, hard to understand research and making it practical for everyday people. This is enjoyable in some ways, but it's not my best work. Like I feel like if I could just put out books and workshops and presentations, I would be thrilled. But it's not that I dislike this or don't enjoy it. It's just different. Yeah, it's interesting one because there is such a component to thought creators putting out things. And, and for me, that's the jazzy part too. That's why the book is three years in its incubation. And to come to the marketing part, it's a different beast, but I think there's something to thinking about it, maybe holistically, I don't know if you do, thinking about like the whole job is to get it actually in front of someone. And so if that's part of the experience, does that bring any energy to the marketing piece of it at all? Would you rather just be like, no, that should be somebody else's job. And I just want to write the third book. I would love for that to be somebody else's job. That said, if you don't do the marketing, it is the equivalent of flushing your book down the toilet. Because one thing I think people confuse often is 
commercial success with quality writing or quality product. And those two things are not the same thing. And just to give you an example of this, the number one movie of all time on Rotten Tomatoes, I just saw it last week. It's called Leave No Trace. It's a film that was made, I think in Australia, 2018. I don't know how many people have seen it. I think it made $7 million. It made a pittance compared to the latest Marvel film, Black Widow, and they don't compare. They're just not the they're not on the same level. So the idea that commercial success and quality work are the same thing is just something that's easy to fall for in every domain of life, not just in art, but also when it comes to career. We assume that people who are more successful are smarter or more gifted, and that's just not the case. Yeah, true. So you've actually, what I like about this book, I was thinking it was going to be, without knowing anything about it, I was thinking of other books who are looking at people who have achieved things. And I thought it was going to be, here's an example, do this. Here's an example, do this. This is so much more reflective in terms of the things that you can do, all of that, you know, the reverse engineering, the skill building, all of that. One of the things you talk about is novel experiences, expanding our perspective so we have more inputs and so on. And I'm wondering if you think the pandemic may have collectively stunted our creative growth because we have, in some ways, more limited, we've had more limited experiences. Yeah, it's interesting. Not only is that true, yes, I agree with your premise, but I think on top of that, I think there's a level of anxiety that is pervasive in every aspect of daily life. It's not just economic uncertainty, but it's also like like a mortality salience induction every time you go to the supermarket. (laughs) And I really think that that has certainly played a role. And beyond that, I think that the fact that we're not in group meetings and in conferences and meeting new people that Yeah, I think it's going to take years until we fully assess the impact of this. And not to mention the psychological impact on our children, the fact that they're not able to be with friends as much as they have been in the past. They're still with some friends, but obviously some of those social events are no longer taking place. My son, for example, who's eight for a year, did not play any sports. He started again now, but, you know, I think there's going to be a real toll. And But there's also been some positive things, like the fact that we're now all really evaluating what we're doing with our lives and not just simply on go, go, go mode and aiming for the next promotion. You see, I don't know, we're calling it the great resignation. I don't know whether that title fits, given that we've gone up from like 0.4 to 0.5% people quitting, whatever the number is, it's a very low increase. But the fact that this is happening kind of on a global scale, that people are reflecting on their jobs and really asking themselves, is this meaningful work? There's some value in that, clearly. I fully agree with you. I call it the great work-life redesign. I'd rather spin it to an opportunity, and I hope leaders are recognizing they can't pretend it's not happening. And it wasn't just millennials. I mean, millennials have been awarded this vocalization of a life that's more meaningful rather than a life of just climbing the ladder. But I was talking about this 25 years ago, which just people thought I had three heads, I think, at a time. So it's interesting. I think we can't dismiss it, which is kind of a beautiful thing. It's kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah. And I think that within a lot of organizations, there's a debate of whether or not to require people to be back in the office or to allow them to work from home. And from a research perspective, The answer to this is obvious. If you're looking at which people are the most engaged at work, it's not the people who are at work at the office all the time. It's not people who are working from home all the time. It's the people who are at the office, but have the flexibility to work from home when the work would benefit from that. And when you give people autonomy, 
they tend to be more energized and more productive. But beyond that, you're really allowing them to leverage their best hours in the best possible way. So what happens when people are, are at work at 3 p.m. and they're all morning birds is they're all on Facebook. That's what happens. So you look at Facebook usage rates and it peaks at 3 p.m. Everyone's at work, but Facebook is exploding. And so rather than requiring people to sit by a desk from nine to five, why not give people the freedom to use their best hours in the office and then to do some chores or be with their family and then return to work when they're energized again? That's what leads to great work. It's not, again, using the factory model and applying it to knowledge work. Exactly. I use often an example. I say, think of a mouse in a cage, right? Think of a mouse in a cage. Sometimes they're sleeping. Sometimes they're running on the treadmill. Sometimes they're nesting. Whether They're not running on a treadmill for eight hours and going, whew, now I'm done. So why do we expect that? We need to take care of human animals. So I love that you said that. It's part of part of my work now is being on a work from anywhere advisory council for it's Staples Canada. And it's fantastic to look at how companies are starting to recognize this and what are we going to do differently? So there's nothing but an opportunity. And the other thing I think it's really important that doesn't get lost in the conversation is inclusivity, right? You, you were mentioning, you know, the people that are not their best at three in the afternoon, which is a lot of us, but, but anybody who's a morning person versus a night owl, we are in a world that's been designed to get the best from the most. We've been sacrificing the most from some of the best minds for particular applications. And where are we going to be if we don't do that? We have such opportunity. So thank you for bringing that up. I had a question here, which I think you've answered, but I wanted to see if there's anything more on it. In your recommendation of how to talk to experts, there are several questions you recommend asking. And one of them is process questions, process about like, how do you do what you do? And when I was reading through all the stories, I'm like, how did you pull out the example of Don Draper and what he was doing in the, the line that he said in the show that connected to the story that you wanted to tell? I think you answered it with your Google Doc and, and how you read things, but I wondered if you can expand on that any further in terms of how you how you think about putting it together when you're like i've got this great story to tell the points i want to make and then do you go for the stories or do the stories lead to the ideas which comes first or in your world yeah it's funny i appreciate you asking and paying such close attention to the process in my case i'm always sending myself notes that go into that Google Doc. So in the case of Don Draper, I remember that episode because it was really resonant for me what he said that. So the quote we're referring to is what he, he's really the secret to creativity. And Don Draper in being approached with this idea for a spinoff show for Candid Camera says, oh, it's derivative with a twist. That's what they're looking for. And derivative with a twist really is the secret to creativity, which is find something that's working, decode its formula, and then find a way of making it just slightly different and making your own. A good example of this might be Squid Game. Now, I haven't watched Squid Game, but obviously it's the most popular show on TV right now internationally. And based on what I've read about it, it sounds like the exact same thing as Hunger Games. Right. I saw the trailer and went, <gasps> not watching that. <laughs> not right. watching that. I yeah, was I'm paralyzed not by the trailer. Exactly. Yeah. But it sounds like Hunger Games. And it's a little bit different because it's a game show. Well, that gets that was a game show too, but I guess people in debt as opposed to people who were selected from a different village. So money is the motivator. They're trying to get out of debt, but they're also trying not to die, right? But the point is it's very similar. And so you might be sitting at home wondering, how do I create a show that becomes a Netflix sensation? And you might say to yourself, I need to be super original in order to make that work. But what the research shows us and what 
chapter is about is that no, if you want to be successful, you actually don't want to be a complete original. You want to be slightly creative. That's the ideal sweet spot. And researchers call this optimal newness. You're looking for something that's slightly different from everything else, which said another way in the immortal words of Don Draper is derivative with a twist. So in that case, I just saw that episode, thought about that line and I don't know that it made into my Google Doc immediately, but I just like that really made an impression on me when I saw it 15 years ago. So as I was writing this chapter, it just naturally came to mind. So I can't really give that particular example. That's just the Ron Friedman brain working and connect. (laughs) Well, but it's brilliance. It's a real brilliance. It's the brain connecting things. Well, that's very kind of you. In my case, one of the arguments I make in this book that I hope stuck with you is that I want to give you license to experience broadly and to not feel guilty about your guilty pleasure because it's in those guilty pleasures that you find your unique spin on things. And so if I was a maybe a more serious person and a less and a less TV viewing individual, I wouldn't have had that. And so there was value in watching Mad Men for me. And so sometimes it really is the case that if you, you know, if you find pleasure in reading literature or watching Tarantino films or whatever the case may be. There's a value in that because so long as you're doing so with a mindset of what can I learn from this and how do I apply it to what I'm working on? Yeah. Well, you have a conscious curiosity while you're absorbing and being entertained. So it's like there's two tracks going on. That's true. There's never a creative thing that I'm watching, whether it be like a a Pixar movie with my kids or a Marvel film, which I just saw Black Widow. There's never an experience where I'm not thinking, how do they do that? Yeah. My daughter's the same. She's 18 and a Marvel, crazy Marvel fan, loves it. And she's like, "Uh, I like the plot development in that. I'm like, what? What? You're just not being watched. She's like, no, I like how they develop the characters. And she's looking at the craft at the same time. So I'm, I'm curious to see where she goes with her brain because it's that thinking that's, that's stimulating. It's interesting that you mentioned, I love this optimal newness though. In my background, I created an organizing product for clothing several years ago. And we got it into all the doors at Bed Bath & Beyond, shopping television, all of that. But I think it was too new. And so it was an interesting one because I look at it and I think, ah, it was loved by many people, but not, it didn't catch right? And I think you're right. There are times when you give examples in the book of products that were developed in 1987 and didn't take off, but now Uber Eats is is like it's its thing, right? And the Apple Watch, you know, I've got an Apple Watch. I absolutely love it. It is not by any stretch the first smartwatch. The first smartwatch was invented by Seiko and it had many of the same features. It predicted weather, it gave you traffic updates, sports scores, didn't catch on. Why? We needed the iPhone to come in between the smartwatch and nothing to acclimate us to the idea of getting updated from devices. Yeah, well, I think of Marie Kondo and all the work she's done to train people to put things in their closet vertically. Now I just need the right business partner to bring the product back because now I think people will get it. Like there's been an acclimation to the concept, if you will, whereas beforehand it was file your clothes. You're just, you're just weird. (laughs) I'm actually interested in this. So what do you do with the clothes? Where do they go? Oh, so there's a product. It's paperboard and fabric over top of it. You lay your garment down and put the product on top. And the product is in three pieces hinge. There's a a living hinge, it's flexible. And when you fold around it, you basically fold it all around the product and it becomes, instead of managing like a floppy piece of paper, it gives you the dimensions of a book, which you could then put on your shelf 
and file all your t-shirts or in your drawer and the manageability it's forever neat and it's easy to manage it's got all the principles of my arrange model visible accessible manageable and pleasing and so all of those things are there and we never thought about i want to make my folded clothes more manageable before you know and no one said i need something to help fold my clothes they want help putting them away after the laundry but no one ever really like not not enough people wanted a clothing folding thing yeah, so it's anyway, that's a whole sidebar, but Clio, P-L-I-I-O.com is the link if you feel like checking it out. It's not in market anymore. So I have the emails from people saying, when is it coming back and stuff like that. But it was certainly a really interesting journey of looking at timing and marketing and innovation and all of that. So to be more creative, you talk about being selective about your influences, mm-hmm. right? So limiting and putting some some boundaries on that. What are your influences? What do you, I mean, it looks like they're varied when I look at your bookshelf for sure. And then you talked about some of the media consume and musicians that we both adore, Bowie and Amy Winehouse among them. I'm curious what you would say, who have been your biggest influences as it relates to your professional life? Mm. Well, I guess it depends on what it is that I'm working on specifically. One thing I will say is that I'm not very good at listening to podcasts. At least I I just don't have enough time in the car for that to be a thing. And I feel like I'm missing out a little bit. Listenership dropped off in the pandemic and it was like, it's now morphed into the, how long do people walk their dogs? That's the ideal length of a podcast now. That's really interesting. Well, we we should wrap up in that note. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, it's interesting. I don't listen to podcasts, but that may be a strength. I'm talking to someone now about developing a podcast in that I'm embracing the idea that I don't know what's popular because I want to create something that's interesting to me. But in terms of writing, obviously, like everyone else, I would have to point to Malcolm Gladwell. He's obviously inspired the entire field. Fellow Canadian. (laughs) That's right. Throw that in there. But beyond that, what I would say is, although you see a lot of business books behind me, I spend most of my time reading fiction and that's deliberate and selfish in the sense that I enjoy it, but it's deliberate in that I think that it has made me a better writer and I don't like everyone else consume the same business books. I think a lot of people, when they read business books, get frustrated when the business book doesn't say the same thing over and over again for 200 pages, because then they feel like, wait a second, I'm supposed to be on to my next book. Why is this book taking me so long to read? And unfortunately, my book is one of those in the sense that you're going to get a completely new idea every chapter. So I think that 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 willingness to embrace what resonates with me is helpful and that it makes my work different. Absolutely. It's almost stuff I think of Montessori learning. You're following interest, right? And then there's going to be natural curiosity. You're not going to get bored before you finish your book either because you're following what's important to you. So yeah, I love that. I struggle to read enough fiction and maybe that's why my book is also three years in its incubation because there is something to studying the craft of writing when you want to create something that you want people to read being a good writer and kudos to you because your stories are grabbing from from the beginning and there's the other thing i love in the book is you've mastered the hook to the next piece there's like these transitional links it's like da 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 but aha uh-huh, not that and you're like oh but there's more and you you know it's like you've got to keep reading so you really mastered that piece as well thank you i appreciate you saying that in case it helps with your book what i will say is as i'm writing the chapters i spend 80 percent of my time outlining 
and 20% of the time actually writing it. And so for me, I know what the sections are going to be, but I don't start writing until I know what the hook is between section one and section two, section two and section three. I will put that in the outline and then start writing. Oh, I love that. I love that because I'm like, well, it gives them life and energy to it, I think. I don't know. Does it unlock the flow then? Because you know you're not leaving something difficult to do till later or? Yes. Yes. Exactly right. I try to separate the thinking from the doing. So yes. the thinking, yes. Yes. So the thinking yes. is in the outlining and that's a creative mindset. So you can have a glass of wine as you're writing the outline. That'll improve your outline, frankly. But when you're actually writing, I don't know that drinking <laughs> Put the bottle that away. <laughs> yeah. Put the bottle away. Exactly. <laughs> and at that point, you're just trying to write for pace and for. And suspense. letting it come out. Yes. I, oh my gosh. Yes. That does help because I hadn't thought about that piece being so critical to the outline. And I have, yeah, the first thing I did was the outline. I need to know where I'm going. I need to have, know how the whole thing hangs together. And then you can go into flow state. I talk about working your pecs. I talk about planning, execution, and calibration. So planning is one thing, execution, another, and calibration and measurement and tweaking is the other thing. So I don't know, make up silly things to be able to remember them, right? So, yeah. <laughs> but no, I love that. That is helpful. And in your book, actually, there were so many meta things going on in the book, like how to talk to experts. I'm like, oh, that's going to come in handy. Excellent. <laughs> and then also this, not the reverse engineering, but the reverse outline, the piece where you're going back and you're looking at, you have this wonderfully fabulous piece about looking at TED Talks. And looking at it's like, oh, what made that tag talk so good and deconstructing it and reverse outlining it, right? And I'm like writing the book notes as I'm, because I've finally figured out my book digestion process for books that I know are books that I'm going to want to come back to and refer to. And so now I have the book on the computer and I have the notes page up and I'm basically making the outline, the more detailed outline as I'm reading the book. And so I'm like, oh, this is so cool. This book is, your book was so practically helpful in not only thinking about how to manage my own ideas and put work out there, but in terms of even capturing and digesting great work. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. And that's really my hope for the book for anyone who reads it, which is that this is a book that's designed to both give you practical tools for getting better at whatever craft it is you're working on, build your skills more quickly, but also demystify some of those great works that have inspired you all those years ago. And one of the key takeaways that I hope people have from this is that really greatness doesn't come down to just talent or practice, but it is accessible to everyone, provided that you use the right strategies. And one of the key strategies is to know how to reverse engineer great works, which is what the book is all about. I love it. Well, on that note, I'm just going to ask you if there's any one last thought you would like to drop here, but, or maybe we save it for the YouTube video where as podcast listener knows, I've been saving one juicy question. So is there something you want to drop here from everyone or shall we come back in the over YouTube? I'm happy to come on YouTube. What I will say though, is if you are interested in learning more about the book, the best place to go is decodinggreatnessbook.com. And the reason I mentioned that website is because if you do purchase the book, you can learn more about the book on the website. If you do decide to purchase the book, you can buy it from any bookstore. And if you send us your receipt, you'll receive a free course on how to reverse engineer in your field. So to make the book a little bit more practical, we have some exercises you can use, you get some handouts and you get to watch some videos. So I hope that is interesting to you. That is absolutely interesting to me and I'm sure to all our listeners because 
I don't know any entrepreneur now who's creating something. You're a productivity coach, you're an organizer, you're also a writer, you're also likely a speaker. There's a lot of things that come in with running a business. So whatever speaks to you there that you want to get better at, definitely check out Decoding Greatness. It's a phenomenal read. And then there are rich resources that can bring this, take the theory that might be there and invite you to embed it into the way you the way you work. So yes, thank you for that invitation, Ron. That is amazing. It's been a, a treat to have you here and to talk to you. And thank you for indulging me in my, my questions about process and how you do what you do. You've been, like I said, the one newsletter that I open and I look for your insights and just I'm deeply grateful for the way you think and your commitment to sharing that gift with the world. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for the kind words. So thanks everybody again for listening. That wraps up this episode of the NAPO podcast standout. I will invite you to visit napopodcast.com and check out other episodes there. And, you know, actually Ron talks about something in his book as well, which is the value of feedback. And I will say one thing about hosting a podcast, Ron, it's like you're having a great conversation and then you just wonder what happened? Because there's no direct feedback. It's like if you're with an audience, you get you get a facial expression, you get a laugh, you get a groan, you get a boo, whatever you get, you get something. But in a podcast, you do this thing and feedback is very slight. So I'm going to encourage anybody who listened to this podcast, we will be putting it out as we always do over social media, connect, let Ron and I know if there's something that you took away from this that you're like, oh my gosh, that insight was so good. I'm definitely going to do that. Or later on, reach out and let us know if, if something you heard here really makes a difference to you. It really kind of lets us know um, from the podcast perspective, if we're doing something meaningful, that's striking a chord with you. If you want less of something, if you want more of something, give us some feedback so we know and certainly share some love in Ron's direction because I imagine you'll be just as big a fan as I am now. So until next time, as always, be safe, be kind to yourself, and above all, enjoy your journey. That's all for today's episode of Stand Out, brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Be sure to visit napo.net to join, learn more about our educational offerings, local chapters, and more.